Hey everybody, uh, Fraser here. So today's episode is with Emeritus Professor Benjamin Zuckerman, who uh, worked at UCLA for many decades, uh, has been at many astronomical institutions, was a was down the hall from Carl Sagan, and has been involved in many of the great astronomical discoveries of our age, the first imaging of of an exoplanetary system and, and many other things. But at the same time, Zuckerman was uh, producing papers on some of the big concepts, the search for extraterrestrials, what would Dyson spheres look like if you could find them? How can we observe uh, techno signatures, aliens on and other uh, stars and planets. So uh, it was sort of really interesting to hear another astronomer who has on the one hand been doing fairly mainstream astronomy research, and at the same time has always been thinking about the big picture of our place in the universe. Absolutely fascinating. I know I say this every time, but still a great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So here you go. I hope. Okay, we're live now. No problem. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to another uh, interview with an astronomer on my YouTube channel. I'll just wait for somebody to confirm our, our existence here on, uh, on the internet. Someone needs to collapse the wave function so that we know that we, that we actually exist. I hope everyone's having uh, a good, is it Tuesday? I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore. Um, <laughs> it's all relative, you know, if you count it from some other observer, who knows? Um, oh, there we go. Someone has told us that we're live. So, all right. Well, so I am, uh, I'm joined by uh, Professor Dr. Benjamin Zuckerman from, from UCLA. Uh, Emeritus, Professor Emeritus, I think was the way you, uh, you were described on your Wikipedia. How would you describe yourself? Well, I'm, I am both a emeritus professor and a research professor, Fraser. Uh, a research professor is a title that UCLA likes to give to some of us. So if we're still active doing research um, and we're applying for research grants or time on telescopes, we can write something down other than Right. Emeritus, which makes it seem like really old fogies and out of touch. Right. So it's so it's all of the above. I think, you know, obviously, the longer you do this job, the more of these these titles you get to sort of collect and then you get to spring them at the uh, whatever, you know, whatever is necessary at the at the time. So so for those of you who aren't familiar with your back, you know, with your with your life's work, um, what have you specialized in? Well, I've, I've done a lot of things in my long career in astronomy. I guess it's over 50 years now. Um, and uh, I started out uh, as a radio astronomer back uh, in the 1960s. One of the hottest topics in astronomy was uh, interstellar molecules, organic molecules in space. And uh, this, we thought might tell us something about you know, the prevalence of life, the origin of life in the universe. So I started with, with that uh, in that field and then went through a number of other incarnations in the subsequent decades. And in recent decades, I've been mainly interested in uh, the study of extrasolar planetary systems in a variety of ways. That's now, just as interstellar molecules was the arguably the hottest topic in astronomy back in the 1970s. So extrasolar molecule, extrasolar planets is the presumably uh, one, if not the hottest topic in astronomy now. And, uh, you know, one of the things we'll get to the sort of why I brought you on to the show, but sort of in, in researching your, your background, uh, one of the pieces of research that you worked on, and I had I had no idea, um, was sort of one of my favorite pieces of research that's been done in the last decade or so, and that was the first imaging of an exoplanetary, multi-planetary system. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people, uh, I don't have the picture sort of handy, I'll put a link in the show notes, but people can sort of remember this, this time-lapse animation of this of this star covered by a coronagraph with multiple planets 
orbiting around it and you can literally see the planets going around. So can you talk a, a bit about that, about that research and sort of how that all came together? Uh, sure. So back, let's see, uh, uh, I guess it was, I think it was 2011. I guess that paper was published in 2008, but, but earlier than that, back around 2000 or so, um, the, the, uh, technique, imaging techniques in the infrared um, had become good enough. So we realized if there were planets out um, there, massive Jupiter-like planets orbiting around young stars, that we'd be able to detect them. The, the critical aspect is that the star needs to be young because when we image these planets, we're not actually, we're not looking at reflected light. Like you look up at the night sky and you see Jupiter or Mars, you're seeing sunlight reflected off these planets, but uh, we're not, the state of the art of astronomy now is not good enough to see reflect, yet quite good enough to see reflected light from planets. So we have to look at young self-luminous planets, which are still hot enough, they're emitting mm -hmm. enough infrared uh, energy that we can measure uh, to see them in the infrared. So, so this was a program that was instituted a couple of decades ago to search for the infrared emission from these young planets. And my, one of my contributions was to identify young stars near Earth so that we know which stars to target for young planets. At any rate, after uh, a few years of not being success, successful, we looked at this HR 8799, and amazingly, we saw three um, massive planets orbiting around it. And then a year or so later, we discovered a fourth one. So there are four planets, or at least four giant planets orbiting around. This starts, it's still the only, I believe it's still the only um, star about which astronomers, or at which astronomers have measured more than one planet, imaged, imaged right, more than right. one planet. Now using other techniques, such as the transit technique with the Kepler satellite, other multi-planet exoplanetary systems have been discovered, but HR 8799 still, I believe, is the only one right. that's with multiple planets have been imaged. It, it's interesting to sort of, to reveal these planets purely by the infrared heat, essentially the light that's coming from the planet itself. The sort of the other technique that I know has been has been very successful in recent times is the sphere instrument and the espresso instrument attached to the very large telescope. And, and in that case, they're they're measuring the polarization of the light bouncing off of the atmosphere as it's as it's as it's coming towards us. So a sort of a similar, I mean, in this case, they're they they are measuring the reflected light, but they're still sort of using a a trick. But just the fact that you're you're not you're not seeing the transit. You're not seeing. You're not looking at the side. You're not inferring the existence of the planet. You are directly imaging it, and that is. And that's the rest of the planets. I mean, the, the transit and the radial velocity they only give you like one percent of the planets out there. It's the, it's all the rest that we want to be able to to see. So, do you see us moving into that regime of, of direct imaging? Um, yes, although it's not clear, at least to me, when this is going to happen. I I think when when thirty, forty meter class telescopes are built in the next. Uh, uh, and go into operation next decade or so that I think the claim is that with, with such large ground-based telescopes, it will be possible to um, perhaps actually image in, in, in planets in say uh, optical, uh, optically. So you can see reflected light or whatnot. I mean, I'm not sure how it's actually going to come out. Yeah. Uh, certainly the best way to go is to go into space, but uh, we're not going doing that very quickly. Uh, there have been a number of different uh, telescopes, space telescopes have been suggested, not only for imaging Jupiter-like planets, but even Earth-like planets. But these haven't gone anywhere because I think the world has got so many problems trying to deal with right now that these these fun and exciting things just aren't aren't happening because the money's not being spent. Yeah, I mean there are. I mean obviously there's there's James Webb, which 
absolutely is going to launch in in October 31st, 2021, for sure. Um, right. yeah. And then, and as you mentioned, there's the there's the 30 meter telescope, there's the giant Magellan telescope, there's the 39 meter extremely large telescope, like there are some big, big telescopes coming. But it's that next generation, the um, like the HabX, the Louvoir, these space giant observatories that will take the, the direct imaging to the next to the next level. But it's crazy. You're probably more aware of these things than I am, because at my age, I don't expect to see those telescopes in operation. So, yeah, I think we're looking at like 2035 for is, you know, if the decadal survey actually approves them, then we could see them by in the in the mid 2030s, you know, even even uh, I'll be, uh, you know, probably looking for retirement uh, by the time this, this starts to happen. Um, so so I want to talk a bit about about some of the the papers that you recently published, because I, you know, I feel like they are just absolutely sort of the Venn diagram of my of my audience. So the, the first one that I thought was great and, and really kind of matched my my thinking on this matter was was your opinion, you know, based on Oumuamua, the sort of, you know, the, the recent, obviously, you know, Avi Loeb is, is saying that Oumuamua is a potential um, spacecraft probe sent to us from another civilization. And you wrote a paper that I thought made a really compelling case that as telescopes get bigger, alien astronomers won't need to send a probe. They'll learn everything they need to from their own home system, thanks to a big telescope. So can you elaborate on sort of the, the thinking on that process? Okay, sure. Well, I've been a fan of, of the space teles giant space telescopes for a number of reasons for quite a few years now. Um, they, I, I wrote a paper a couple of decades ago about using them to guide um, space probes um, to, to other stars and, and, and to um, expedite projects such as directed panspermia, where we try and send microorganisms to exoplanets and start life at, on some that don't have life. So I've been interested in this for a couple of decades. More um, about uh, back around those times. Also, I, I wrote a paper where I argued that the existence of these giant space telescopes is actually a strong argument against the the prospects for for local SETI. That is, that um, uh, for reasons I won't go into today, but uh, the mere existence of, of giant space telescopes that the extraterrestrials will have will make it much less likely that any local search for extraterrestrial intelligence will be successful. But most recently, in terms of this Muamua uh, object, the first uh, interstellar visitor from interstellar space to our solar system, um, the here's here's an outline, the argument that I, I, I wrote and was published in this, this paper recently. Um, that the uh, this if if this if Muamua was is is a uh, spacecraft sent uh, a spaceship sent by some alien civilization, it really didn't do anything interesting at all in our solar system. At most, if it had a, at say a ten meter telescope attached to it, it might have taken some pictures of the Earth as it zoomed by at uh, us. Uh, over a period of a couple of months um, at a distance no closer than two-tenths of an astronomical unit. So right. limited to what it could do both in time and in proximity to the Earth. And the thing I pointed out in my paper is that um, if, if this, this uh, spacecraft took an absolute minimum of 50,000 years to get here at the velocity, its measured velocity. Um, if it came from the very closest star, if it came from anything further away, it'd take hundreds of thousands of years. Well, any te technological civilization that's much, that much time um, to develop technology is going to have giant space telescopes out in space. I mean, not these, you know, little uh, James Webb kind of things, but things that might be a kilometer in size, for example, rather than 10 meters in size, or right. whatever. Um, and 
and a whole array of them, an interferometric array of them. So giant telescopes in an interferometric array. And so I just worked out in this paper that if you have such a, a system of, of telescopes in your, inter, in your, if the extraterrestrials have such a system of telescopes in their interplanetary space, then they can study our solar system with far more precision over and over far longer periods of time than Muamua could as it zipped right. by um, in a period of a few months. So it would make absolutely zero sense for any extraterrestrials to want to send a, a, a spacecraft of that sort when they've studied our, system, our planetary system to death with over eons of time during the time this, you know, this 100,000 years is taking the spacecraft to get here, they're studying with their giant space telescopes right. for 100,000 years. They're studying our planetary system, and they know far, far more about it than Muamua could possibly right. learn in the time it goes it, by. So I, I sort of concluded, the, or, the, or one of my conclusions was, the only probe that would make any sense for them to send, given the capabilities of giant telescopes, is one... It was not a flyby, but actually went into close orbit around the Earth, just like we put our spacecraft in close orbit around the planets of our solar system. They send something, it goes in close orbit around the Earth, and it sits there for you know months or years or something like that, looking at us up close and personal. But that's not what Muamua was at all. Right. And so when you just do the math and look at how close it got at its closest point to any of the planets in the habitable zone of the sun, Venus, Earth, and, and Mars, you could, you could match that capability with, a, with an array of kilometer size. You could far, far surpass that right. capability. So I would love I, to- way, with, the, with these space telescopes, they already have known that Mars and Venus are not interesting places. Right. They have, they're, they're not living worlds. They, they don't, either don't have atmospheres or they have too much atmosphere. Uh, there's no evidence for anything. The only, in, it, we know enough about our own solar system and about extrasolar planetary systems now to know that the only really conceivable interesting thing in our solar system, any other creatures that might be out there is Earth. And, and they just obviously didn't right. do a very good job of studying Earth. Which is, so which is tell high. me about the capabilities of a multi-kilometer sized interferometer. I mean, I mean, it sounds mind bending, but also when I think about the future of us building, assembling space-based structures, it doesn't seem that far into the future that we could build such a thing. I mean, you know, it's a little bit of aluminum and some shiny foil and, and a camera or two. So what could a, an interferometer of that kind of capacity, what would that allow us to see about a, on, on other worlds around other stars? Yeah, well, I agree with you that, that um, I think technologically for a civilization, technological civilization, not much in advance of our own. And by that, I mean, cosmically speaking, say a few hundred years, a thousand years, building these giant space interferometers is not going to be hard. After all, we did, um, here on Earth, we have this incredible um, interferometer that, that this discovered, gra measured gravitational waves passing through. Right. I mean, that just seems so much harder to me than building some of these space interferometers. We've already done that. Uh, so once, once you have these giant telescopes in space, um, you can use them for, for a whole variety of, of projects. The ones I'm most interested in are, the, uh, are, are projects that are related to life in the universe. Suppose we discover uh, <clears throat> with, that there is a living world that is a world with life on it, so orbiting around some nearby star. I'm not talking about technological life, just, you know, life of, of any sort, then what we can do with these space telescopes is we can study the system as a function of time. We can measure the, the right. spectrum uh, of, of the planet. And in case of our own, uh, own planet, if somebody was measuring it, they'd see their continents and, and oceans. They can measure the spectrum of the vegetation um, or photosynthetic vegetation. We can, we can see um, annual changes 
uh, you know, our yearly cycles or long-term changes due to ice ages and, and things like that. Again, these any 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 star with, that has a technological civilization in orbit around it that's near our solar system now has been near us for a million years or yeah, so. Yeah. So they got plenty of time right. to study. So, you know, even though it seems to us like the ice ages, you know, and they occur every thousand, 10,000 years or something, when you can study a system for a million years, 10,000 years doesn't seem very old. So they can study us in so many different ways, yeah. spectroscopically and, and time and time series and whatnot. So that's the, what's the most interest to me personally, but a, a lot of my colleagues who study the, the far edges of the universe um, could use these kinds of, of telescopes. To, uh, to study cosmology in ways that are, you know, way beyond what we can do now. But we think about this idea that right now, even the best telescopes that we have access to, and even that next generation ones that are coming out, they're going to give us one pixel. Like one very interesting pixel, but still one pixel. Does something that is that kind of scale start to... Oh, yeah, you'll be able to resolve that. I mean... Uh, as I meant to imply, when you have these giant telescopes, you'll be able to have many pixels on the Earth, and you'll be able to, for example, if somebody was looking at Earth from, from one of the nearby stars with, with one of these giant space interferometers, they'd be able to clearly distinguish the continents from the oceans and whatnot. And I mean, depending on exactly, um, you know, what the resolution is, who knows whether they'll be able to resolve, you know, 100 kilometers or 10 kilometers or whatever. But, but you know, that's just a detail. But certainly, they'll be able to see their continents and oceans and whatnot, and 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 measure the spectrum wow. of the different of, of the different parts of the Earth, the ice the ice caps, and you know whatnot. And, and I know that when people. You know, there have been various attempts to send messages out to other civilizations and people are concerned that if we send out that message to an alien civilization, then then the invasion fleet won't be more than a few years out. But obviously, the, just our very existence and interaction with our with our planet, our cities at night, the pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere, the fact that that algae has been filling our atmosphere with oxygen for 500 million years. Like the jig is up. They know we're here. They know everything about us from their comfy homes. I agree totally what you just said. You know, also, I think it's ridiculous to think that there are going to be any kind of invasions for so many reasons. I mean, we are still a, a, a controlled by our Darwinian instincts and whatnot. Any, any, species that learns to live sustainably they've gotten beyond that and they're not going to be going out and making war on some other creatures orbiting around some other star also their biochemistry is going to be different than ours so they're not even being able to i mean it's going to be just so different right um, yeah earth would <laughs> earth would suck for them and their planet will suck for us and and so we've already found the best planet in the universe us. Right. I mean, we, we might, we, we will, I think, if there is life, I'm not talking about technological, just life in general, if there is life on other, on, uh, on planets orbiting at other stars, we're going to find it extremely interesting to study that life and vice versa if somebody wanted to kind of study Earth life, which, by the way, they could have done for, as you pointed out, for a billion years before we ever appeared here. Um, then that will be of interest, but it's not going to be this conquest or, or kind of thing at all. It'll be much more just scientific and, uh, gee, we're interested in your biology or something like that. But right. We're not going to try and do any harm to you. I think these uh, the, the, the idea that we have anything to worry about from a technological species or that's you know originated around on some other star it's just frankly ridiculous in my right opinion. um or they would already have been here and and well, yeah right and and you know the fact they that by the way the fact they haven't already been here or there's no evidence for that um is a good reason to think they're not very common in our in our galaxy there must be few and far between or there's a good chance that somebody would have come here now somebody somebody says, well, maybe they are us, um, but if since all biochemistry on on the Earth is is basically the same, if they are us, they came, 
you know, three and a half, 3.8 billion years ago, and they seeded Earth in some way, and uh, and then they left us alone ever since then. It's right. not like you know, some somebody came like 700 million years ago and, and introduced a new new kind of or different kind of life because all life that we've ever measured uh, or studied is has got the same basic right. bio. Every, everything is everything is related with a common ancestor. So now you have also done some interesting thinking about what it might take for us to move out into the cosmos and to explore other worlds, to send our own Oumuamua's out to other star systems. And it's not as energy intense as we maybe have been led to believe. Right, Fraser. Um, I just, my, my UCLA faculty colleague, Brad Hansen, and I sort of just you know, had a eureka moment uh, last year sometime and realized this. And we just wrote a paper, which just was published in the Astronomical Journal just within the last month or so. And what we realized, which to my amazement, I've been in this business, actually, before I tell you about the paper Brad and I wrote, I've been in this business actually since the 1960s. I was a graduate student at Harvard and during the same years that Carl Sagan was um, was a system professor there, and my office was right down the hall from his, and we had lots of uh, a number of interesting conversations. That later, after everybody else went home, or maybe on the weekend, we'd both be there and wander down to his office, and we'd chat about these things. So I've been um, involved in this since the 1960s in one way or another. And actually, Carl encouraged my uh, colleague and friend Patrick Palmer and me to go out and try a radio search for signals from other civilizations. We did that during the 1970s. Um, at any rate, uh, um, so I've been thinking about this, these kind of pro problems for a long time. I was surprised that, that when Brad and I realized last year that, that it's not necessarily as hard to, to go, to, to take a spaceship between two stars as we all have been led to believe. I mean, the standard argument as to why interstellar space travel is so difficult is because the stars are about a parsec or a few light years apart on average. And unless you get up to very rapid velocities, it's very hard to go mm -hmm. that distance given that separation. But what Brad and I realized in this paper we just published is if you're patient, you wait a few hundred million years which sounds like a lot of time to us now, but when the earth is gonna be habitable for a couple of billion years more, so a few hundred million years, not that long, you wait a couple of hundred million years and some star is gonna pass a hundred times closer to the earth um, than, right. than the typical star in the, in the solar vicinity is now. So rather than going having to go say a parsec or a few light years, you only have to go a hundredth of a light year or something like that. And then and you work it out, that means you could you could travel with velocities not much faster than the velocities which Voyager, for example, the spacecraft are leaving our plan our our planetary system, our solar system, for a period of a human lifetime, like a hundred years, and you could get to one of these stars as fast really near Earth. So um, if you want to make a jump to another star, and I'll tell you a reason why you might want to make that in just a second, if you're patient, it's not so hard as people have led themselves to believe. And the reason why you might want to make such a jump is that I wrote a paper back in 1985, so I guess 36 years ago or so now, where um, I argued that stellar evolution is going to force um, or will probably force technological, long-life technological civilizations to, 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 to leave their own home star and to go to another star. Now, uh, the, the, if, there are a lot of, if there are a lot of technological civilizations in the galaxy, then some of them have already been have had to face this the, the fate of their star evolving first to a red giant and then a white dwarf. Right. So if this is not hypothetical, if there are a lot of technological civilization galaxies, some some of them have certainly already had to face this 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 problem, this conundrum. And so 
one possibility is to leave and go off to another star system. Um, and and again, if you if you're patient and you wait till one passes by close by, like a long-lived M-type star, some low-mass star, you could you could transition relatively easily, and then you'd have a home that would last for hundreds of billions of years, right. if not a billion years for the lowest one. And so, that, well, I was, well, was going to say that's like a, what you know when we sort of make the case, and this you all the way back to even Enrico Fermi, who had done the math, you know, sort of did the math in his head and said, like, you know, if you send one spacecraft to a planet, and then it has a factory and it makes a bunch more spacecraft, and they go to two other star systems, you could effectively explore the entire Milky Way over the course of 10 million years. One million years, you know, if you're going to go 10% the speed of light, maybe if you're going to go slower, it'll take you a little longer. But I wonder if you, if you sort of take into account these close flybys of stars, I mean, if it's once every 100 million years, but maybe you get a flyby that's, that's more approachable every million years like it's you know it's all it's a numbers yeah, game sure that's right i mean it just depends on how close yeah. one thing but these close flybys will make it easier to do right. what you're just suggesting fraser but if you, as long as you've got some patience um you know maybe for 10 million years rather than 100 million years somebody's going to come um, yeah. much closer than than a parsec and that'll make a jump easier and will make this so-called Fermi paradox yet more of a paradox. Right. And so I wonder then, like, did you calculate, like, if you wanted to still do that pathway where you just go to every star system geometrically, but you also take into account all these nice close flybys, does that significantly impact the time? It feels like it, it, it impacts, you know, your first trip, but after a while, it all starts to smooth out into the larger distribution. It's a good question and one we purposely did not try and address in our paper. We, we, we absolutely, it was a minimal, we, minimal conditions for, for, and minimal transfers. We just let each um, technological civilization transfer to one or most a right. couple of stars, and we did not explore the question you are asking: is you know how 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 long would it take when you factor in this close passage idea? How long would it take to fill up the galaxy with technology? Um, and we we purposely did not right. do that calculation. Be definitely a worthwhile calculation. In, in fact, sort of while I'm sort of doing the math kind of roughly in my head. If you've got a, a hundred billion stars that you're going to visit, and you're going to wait for some percentage that are going to have, you know, each one has to wait one in ten million times, it probably won't change your flight time, your overall course at all, because you're going to be getting this doubling across, you know, every year well, that goes you by, you're going to have. If you, if you if 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 say it um, it's relatively easy to make a transfer in a hundred million years, um, and so you double every hundred million years in the space of um, say two or three billion years, uh, you've got two to the power twenty or thirty. I didn't can't work it out in my head, but that's a big number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, it really depends on how often you decide to make these transfers, I think, right. as to how much these kind of considerations will impact the ease of filling the galaxy with the spacecraft. But, but you know, double factor two taken to a big enough power um, is going to be a big number. And again, 100 million years is still short compared to the billions of years that... Uh, that the particularly the earliest technological civilizations in our galaxy, assuming that there are other technological civilizations, might have arisen. So they might have had a you know billions of years head start on us um, easily because you know. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're yeah the the galaxy is more than ten billion years old, and the Earth is only four and a half billion years old. So if there are a fair number of technological civilizations, some of them had many billions of years head start on us. And if you're transferring every hundred billion years, that gives you a lot of possible doubling, doubling time. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, I, so like once again, it's made the Fermi paradox even more troubling that, 
that yeah. you don't even have to come up with really advanced, incredible. Right. You don't have to be traveling at a tenth the speed of right. light. You just have to, to jump uh, from island to island. Jump. That's right. As I said, you could go at a few times what um, the what Oumuamua is traveling at, or or what our Voyager spacecrafts are traveling as they leave the solar system, just a few times. And you could do that easily, I think, with something like fusion yeah. power. You don't need any of these exotic um, uh, mechanisms yeah. to, uh, to, to, tra to travel a few times faster than uh, voyagers are traveling and uh, use the, um, the, the gravity of the giant planets to help you accelerate and whatnot and and then just sort of one sort of human lifetime there's nothing sacred about a human lifetime i suspect that in the in the in the future even if we're still made of sort of flesh and blood and carbon and you know, our descendants are made of carbon and water and all that the lifespans will be longer than they are now and then we may be we may invent or develop another kind of life whether it be you know something more artificial intelligence and based on some other materials that might be able to live or last a lot longer than 100 years. Um, it's interesting. And so, you know, the, the last piece of research that I wanted to talk with you about was your thinking on Dyson spheres. So in terms of Dyson spheres, I had another a eureka moment um, just, uh, or I think it was earlier this year towards the last year so I, I mentioned that if you're, you're on a, a technological civilization that's orbiting around the star that's evolving first to a red giant and a white dwarf one possibility is to just leave everybody leaves and again if everybody's leaving then you really would like to to just have a relatively short jump to the nearest star that's why i think these these kind of considerations that brad hansen and i wrote about are, are important if you want to just send every, not just a probe or two, but send everybody out to another star system. But the other possibility is you don't, not everybody leaves and plenty of the creatures, whatever the creatures might be, stay behind. And they, they first move outward away from their stars that evolves into a red giant and then move in towards the white dwarf that the red giant evolves into. And they nestle in close to the white dwarf. Well, once you've gone through all those kind of changes, you're, whatever you are, you're basically living in giant space colonies. Um, it's just no way to keep living on planetary surfaces when you go through such a sequence of events. You can envision our own planetary system where um, once Earth becomes uninhabitable billions of years from now, we're not gonna be living in Jupiter or on Saturn or anything like that. And he's just big gas bags. So basically, uh, just about everybody is going to be living in giant space colonies. And once you you've got a bunch of creatures orbiting around the white dwarf and the, the stars, almost all stars evolved to, once you've got them living in these giant space colonies, you basically have a Dyson sphere or a ring or something like that. And not only do you have the colonies, you probably have big energy collection devices that can collect energy from the star and beam it to the colonies. And then you probably also have giant space telescopes, which you're using to either do great astronomy or maybe to communicate with other technological civilizations somewhere else in the galaxy. So you have all these giant things, giant space colonies, giant energy collectors, giant telescopes. They're all absorbing light from the central, from the white dwarf and radiating in the infrared. And you basically have a Dyson sphere. There's just no way to avoid it. Right. If you're, if you're living around a white dwarf, you are in a Dyson sphere. <laughs> right. And so the paper I just submitted a week or two ago, the journals basically actually describes how these, how Dyson spheres around white dwarfs have already been search for, although people didn't realize they were doing that. And also <laughs> Dyson spheres around main sequence stars, stars like the sun have also been searched for and people didn't realize they were doing that. And so I basically, this paper described both the searches around white dwarfs and main sequence stars that have already been carried out, you say without success so far, and they're not very sensitive. So you can't put a very stringent upper limit on the number of technological civilizations that exist in the galaxy from existing observations, but you can put the first quantitative 
limit on the number of technological civilizations in our galaxy by saying there are no, there is no evidence for Dyson spheres around either white dwarfs or main sequence stars. And this enables you to put some kind of a limit on what's called capital N, the number of technologies. And so the, the signature, like, this is like looking for an infrared signature of a Dyson sphere. We'll give off a very clear right. What happens signature. to Dyson spheres is the, is the space colonies or the constructs, any other construct, whatever country, absorbs the optical and ultraviolet light from the, from the central star, whether it be a white dwarf or a main sequence star, and radiates it in the infrared. It typically at wavelengths of a few microns to about 10 microns. The Earth is radiating mostly at 10 microns wavelength. But we could build, for example, energy collection devices that would be could um, be quite happy at higher temperatures, maybe up to a thousand degrees. In which case, their their waste heat, heat energy would come out at a few microns wavelength rather than ten microns wavelength. So that's the range of infrared wavelengths that that one wants to search for these Dyson spheres, anywhere between a few microns and ten microns wavelength. And there's, n and there's no natural process that could give you a point source of infrared radiation that's that's in that. In well, that there actually are a lot. Unfortunately, that's one of the problems mm. here. There are actually quite a few sources uh, that, that are a number of them that can produce this kind of energy. And you've got to, we, you've got to get rid of them or figure out, you know, that what's going on. So in the case of the white dwarf stars, for example, Many white dwarfs have par uh, dust particles in orbit around them, orbiting around them, and uh, um, and these dust particles absorb the radiation from the white dwarf and um, and radiated the optical radiation from white dwarf ultraviolet and radiated infrared wavelengths. In fact, my colleague Eric Beck and I were the first back in 1987 to discover a dust ring around a white dwarf. And now many dust rings are known. And so if you see infrared radiation from the phones right here, it's probably a robocall. I'm sure you, yeah, it's a spam call. Anyway, um, so the, uh, so if, 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 if there's infrared radiation from, I don't know how to shut this thing up. Um, sorry. If there's call for radiation. potential spam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there's infrared, I get, you know, 10 times as many robocalls, I get real calls. Yeah, yeah. If, if there's infrared radiation coming from a white dwarf, and we know many such white dwarfs, the chances are it's coming from orbiting dust particles. There's also a chance it's coming from so-called brown dwarfs, which are uh, objects that are sort of intermediate between stars and planets that your listeners probably know about. They also are strong sources of infrared radiation, but in the case of, for example, white dwarfs and also main sequence stars, it's much more likely that the infrared radiation is coming from dust particles and from brown dwarfs. Anyway, those are sort of background sources you got to get rid of, and you got to you got to say, oh well, it's it's definitely not a brown dwarf. It's definitely not dust particles. Well, maybe it's a Dyson sphere, but these are these are kind of issues you need to and, deal with. And, and people, I mean. I, I've made sort of I've provided sort of the same explanation about this that that one of the most interesting ways to just search for alien civilization. I mean, I always talk about the fact that we have already begun our Dyson sphere with our various spacecraft, satellites, space telescopes, things that are harvesting solar power and doing things is is essentially that's how you get a Dyson sphere is you you just do it bit by bit. And after a while, you realize you've enclosed your entire star and you're harnessing every little piece of its of its radiation. And then, of course, you have to give off that waste heat. And people always make this. They always say, well, couldn't super smart aliens be able to hide the heat? Couldn't they couldn't they use the heat? Well, like, how, how do you respond to that? Sort of like, you know, if we think the only that idea I've ever heard of is that you keep using it. So you degrade it. You. You keep transferring it in some way, maybe from a hotter object to a cooler one. So eventually it comes out at such a long wavelength that you really wouldn't be sensitive or notice it or be looking for it. So pretty, there's no real reason to do anything that extreme. I think there's really no way to hide, to hide this. Um, by the way, um, 
one doesn't need a full up Dyson sphere. You don't need to absorb all the radiation central star. You could have a ring which only absorbs a, uh, some relatively small percentage of it. So in particular, these, sur these surveys that have been already done for Dyson spheres without people realizing they were doing it, were sensitive to um, fractional infrared luminosities about one part in a thousand. So the way, what that means is, imagine you're standing here on earth and you look up in the sky and you see the moon. Well, let's say you, we didn't have one moon, but we had 200 moons and you filled our sky with 200 moons. That means that if you look, if you were in such a situation, looked out into space, one time in a thousand, your line of sight would hit one of these moons. And that's the amount of sky coverage that is relevant for the projects that have already been done. They're sensitive to Dyson spheres with a fractional infrared luminosity about one tenth of one percent of the luminosity of the star about which uh, the putative Dyson sphere is orbiting. So you, these constructs only have to block about one tenth of one percent of the light from their central star, would be white dwarf or main sequence star, and they um, and they in principle could be detected right. by the by current by current. Level of technology we have right now on Earth. So I'd love to sort of synthesize then all of the the thinking that you talked about, sort of even just during this this episode, and and I'm sure the the countless other papers that you've worked on. I mean, the Fermi paradox. I find the Fermi paradox as troubling a concept now as I'm sure when Fermi first unleashed it on his on his lunch uh, mates. Where where are the aliens? Do you think at this point? Well, I personally don't think they exist. I mean, I'm definitely in the capital N uh, equals one or at most a couple um, in our galaxy. I think I think uh, technological life is very rare. I think probably even simple life is rare, but we, we won't know that until we actually either find life on, or evidence for either extent or fossil life on Mars or until until we, we, we launch actually launch something like Terrestrial Planet Finder or the, or the European Darwin, where we can actually search nearby star systems for, um, for Earth-like worlds and see whether they're living or not. My guess is when that happens, that, that we're, gonna, we're not going to find any living worlds. Um, and I'm talking about simple life, not, not, not technological life, just sort of any life at all. Yeah. I just think the origin of life is hard. Uh, that's my personal belief. I don't have any. I, I again, I in this paper I wrote some years ago. I think I can present good arguments as to why technological life, basically an extension of the Fermi paradox, um, is uh, is 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 rare in our galaxy. I think in terms of simple life, nobody really knows. It's yeah. still a guess. And my personal gut feeling is that even simple life is rare, and it's because the origin of life is not so easy as some people think. But I'm just. And I don't have any better knowledge of uh, uh, insights into this than yeah. anybody else. So well, until we actually do the experiment, we're just not going to know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I had a chance to talk to a biologist who sort of has been thinking about that that side of things, and I talked about like what is the difference between simple life and complex life when you have. Um, you know, when you have fairly simple life forms coming together in larger and larger communities, performing behaviors that are more similar to complex life, like when you have an ant versus an ant colony, when you have one bacteria versus a bacterial mat. And, you know, in our conversation, you know, he kind of agreed that, that in fact, there probably is no real specific delineation between what is a simple life form and what is a, what is a complex life form. And so to make that arbitrary line in the sand and say, well, simple life is everywhere, but complex life is nowhere, isn't even really a, a fair thing to say. I mean, you know, my audience knows I'm in the exact same camp as you. I, you know, I'm, I'm firmly in the belief or, you know, my suspicion holds that we are alone in the observable universe, that, that they would have been here by now. And so I know that you have done a lot of thinking about sort of our role in the environment and what we humans are doing to our own planet. How does that fit in with that possibility that we are alone in the cosmos? What do you think our responsibility is to, to our planet and to the future of, of humanity? 
crazy you've hit upon the second great interest of my life and that is life here on earth and um, how we're decimating it it's just so sad i mean this could be such a you know we people many people think of you know life well it's going to be all over the place and everything's nothing so special necessarily about earth life in the sense there's lots of other life out there but we don't really know that and we're we're just decimating so many other species i i don't think that um that we're going to wipe ourselves as some people think well technological life in the universe might be rare because you get to a situation like we're in and and then the creatures destroy themselves through nuclear war or climate change or pandemics or destruction of the oceans whatever as you name it you can think of a half a dozen different things as foolish as we are, I don't think that we're going to do that to ourselves. We're going to do it to a lot of other helpless species on Earth. When, when finally the nadir is reached and we turn things around and we learn how to live sustainably, um, will the whoever survives to that point will be living in a biologically um, very much diminished world. And it's sort of it's really sad, in my opinion, that that's the way it's going to turn out, but it's just inevitable given our current overpopulation, overconsumption, and with le very little desire from the, the, the powers that be, the politicians are basically controlling the, the countries of the world, that this is going to change anytime soon. Um, it's not, unfortunately. Now, I'm going to be gone long before the nadir is, is reached, but... Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't feel. I don't envy. I don't envy the people who are going to live into the twenty second century, and some of them are already here. They've already been born and already living. Well, I and so you know, I sort of think about this like, if we are alone in the universe, then what a tragedy that we had this opportunity to bring life to the universe, this wonderful special thing, and and we sort of either messed it up or delayed the when the dolphins could rise up and they could be the ones that actually f figure this out or the you know the squid or or whatever um so you know another sort of concept that you've sort of thought about is this idea of directed panspermia so let's say that we are alone that that it's just rocks and hydrogen and helium as far as the eye can see and and that the universe is made better with life than without it, what, what could we do to sort of spread life to the universe? Well, Brad Hansen, who I mentioned before, one of my colleagues and one of his students um, have, and another group um, not at UCLA have estimated that something like 30% of the planets, at least planets that are orbiting around solar type stars have um, habitable planets in orbit around them. So that just because a planet's habitable doesn't mean that life is going to originate there or, or exist there, but in principle it might. And so if Brad and, and, and these estimates are anywhere near right, then one thing that you know we could do with directed panspermia is to send life to to these other worlds, these habitable worlds, and see whether it, can, it can, can, might be able to take hold there. Um, that's pretty, still, I think, pretty far in the future. Again, we got to get by our own problems here before we're going to be seeding any other worlds with life. But, um, but in principle, that's the kind of thing. If we find that there are all these habitable worlds out there, but no evidence that any of them have life, or very few, if any, um, have life actually on them, and you know, we can we can learn that by studying their atmospheres and uh, composition atmospheres and things like that. Then then we could try the direct, uh, uh, program directed panspermia. That would be presumably a lot cheaper than actually sending people, um, you know, in, in giant space. Economy. We could this this problem of, of of long trips at high velocities would be a lot less severe for. Uh, for carrying out a program of directed panspermia rather than actually trying to, to settle or colonize these other worlds ourselves. And what would a directed panspermia look like? How would that, you know, what would you be sending? 
I guess you try and make, you'd send a rocket, which try and make a soft landing on the habitable planet, and then just dump a whole bunch of microorganisms there, basically. In this paper I wrote in 1985, I actually had the us or the uh, technological civilizations uh, controlling these rockets, these, these, these spacecraft, which are carrying all the bugs, with controlling them for most of the, the, the trip with giant space telescopes in, in, our, in, in the home planetary system. And then the, the, the actual spacecraft only has to take over at the very last uh, bit of time, just uh, shortly before it actually tries to land on, on the exoplanet, the habitable planet, and, and, and let loose its, its cargo of microorganisms or whatever else we decide to send. Yeah. Right. It's interesting that you know you sort of synthesize all of the all of the ideas. I know like uh, Japanese researchers recently found microbes that had been living under the ocean seafloor for like a hundred million years, and they dug it up and fed it, and it was back in business, ready to keep going. That that you could wait um, with your giant interferometer. Uh, direct your spacecraft on that short hop when when the opportunity approaches and you just smash a rock filled with bacteria into uh, another planet and you give life a chance to uh, and then hope that when they evolve into something interesting they do the same they pass it they pass it uh, forward yeah, that might take, you know, on Earth, it took quite a while to go from the first microorganisms to yeah. complex. But anyway, yeah. yeah, but you're saying there's a chance. I think, so. yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think there's a chance. Um, and in fact, when I used to teach a life in the universe course at UCLA, I used to, you know, have, say some serious, what I thought were, you know, try to be serious words about the idea of panspermia and even directed panspermia, because we don't... The, the, the great missing step um, piece in the in the march of life on Earth um, is uh, um, is is how did you go from the primordial soup in one of these warm ponds or something or the or the vents at the bottom of the the the, the, hot, the hot vents at the bottom of the ocean how do you go from from some mix of chemicals to um, a uh, the first living cell and we don't really know how that's yeah. been done because there is this mystery it 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 allows alternatives such as actually life didn't originate in earth but came through panspermia or directed panspermias as alternatives and um and, and one might think that's just sweeping the the problem under the rug but um there, there are lots of there are a number of reasons why it is, it's more than just sweeping the, the problem under the rug. It uh, um, it it, uh, uh, <clears throat> it may be that life elsewhere originated in in some some form that's much simpler than the cell, which is so complicated. But we don't know what that form is because yeah. we, um, we don't see any of that on Earth. But it might have originated in some other way on on some other planet. But then either through panspermia or directed panspermia, the cell, uh, cells actually got sent to Earth. And so the simplest life form on Earth might have been a cell. Um, and uh, whereas somewhere else, which had maybe more favorable conditions, um, maybe more reducing atmosphere or something like that on, a, on a, another world, it might have been easier for life to originate in that world, develop cells and then cells got transported to Earth either by panspermia or directed panspermia. There's also this chirality that it's been a mystery to some people as to why um, why life is chiral, why we have a handedness. Um, why are we, why are all creatures, you know, left-handed on Earth, left-handed, right-handed, depending on which molecules you're talking about. So that's been a, a, a problem that's been batted around by many scientists and um, I can think of two explanations for that. One is that life originated only once in the entire history of, of, of the Earth, and it happened to be, you know, the chirality we have. It, the other one just never, never began. Um, and the other possibility is that these it, it came from pan, 
panspermia, directed panspermia, right. and it came in a chiral form that the whoever sent it or ever came here was only one handedness of of uh, of cells, and um, and so that would another way to explain chirality. So panspermia has a lot of virtues associated with it. And I don't think it should be ignored. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I, we've reached the end of our hour. I don't want to take any more of your time. It's been absolutely fascinating, and and I really appreciate you uh, taking this conversation into some of the uh, uh, some of these concepts. You know, a lot of you know they are philosophical and something that I know a lot of people wonder and think about as as we sort of recognize our larger role in the in the cosmos it we run up against these ideas so i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today um if people sure. want to follow your work uh where should they go <laughs> um well uh i mean you're on archive you, so you know right. there is this journal. astronomy archive it's called uh astro ph yeah or ARXIV, you can let them know, um, your, your audience know maybe how they can access that. And so if you go to that and you plug in name, my name in particular, and, and a year, a range of years, you can see what papers um, um, I've been, in, uh, you know, been involved with. Most of them don't have to do with these topics. Yeah. Of, you know, but we've been talking about today, most of them have to do with much more conventional astronomy. But yeah. anyway, they'll be there too. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know the audience really enjoyed the, the conversation as well. And uh, and let me know uh, when you do find aliens. <laughs> okay. Thank you so Thanks. much. Bye-bye.